Thanks very much to Jeff and to Cato for organizing this and having us here. Um, just for those of you who weren't here yesterday or may have forgotten, it's 30 minutes for the presentation, then two 20-minute discussions, and then we'll have time for questions afterwards. So our speaker today for the first session is Paul Willen from the Boston Fed, and he's going to tell us how and how not to prevent a foreclosure crisis. <clears throat> There's a... Not. Slides are. I can see them. Well, that's you matters, can't. Right? Can they? There we go. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So I this. Um, uh, I'd like to thank Jeff for uh, taking a chance on what was a what is a, a very um, kind of speculative um, venture. This paper, um, and um, I've never written a paper quite like this before. Uh, so let me also just uh, warn you that uh, these slides are, I don't think I can get through all these slides, so I'm going to have to skip something. Um, and, but this is the short version. Uh, so I've already cut a ton out of this, um, so bear with me. OK, let me start by saying um, that I'm speaking today. Uh, this is important, especially here in Washington, as a researcher and as a concerned citizen and not as a representative of the Boston Fed or the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and so when I say we, uh, I don't mean Ben and me. I put the slide up every time. But today, uh, I actually don't mean that everything except this slide. So this quote, I I've saw this quote over the weekend, and I thought this perfectly applies to this paper. Uh, and the quote is, economics is a highly sophisticated field of thought uh, that is superb at explaining to policymakers precisely why the choices they made in the past were wrong uh, about the future, not so much. Uh, and this is where uh, I come in. Uh, today is, however, careful economic analysis does have one important benefit, which is that it can help kill ideas that are completely illogical, uh, completely logically inconsistent or wildly at variance with the data. Uh, and this insight covers at least 90% of all proposed economic policies. So this quote actually comes from uh, Ben Bernanke. I guess he gave a commencement speech or something at Princeton uh, on Sunday. Uh, and so this is the only thing where when I say we, I mean Ben and me. Uh, okay, so what I'm going to talk about today is what I'm going to refer to as the sort of briefly, as the crisis consensus, which is a set of beliefs about what caused the crisis uh, and what we should do to prevent another one. And the theory behind it is the crisis resulted from deception by informed intermediaries. Uh, they deceived borrowers into getting loans they couldn't repay, uh, and they deceived investors uh, into buying them. Uh, and it's a story, um, I think the people talk about um, misaligned incentives is the word that people use a lot. So it leads to a slate of policies. And in the paper, I'm going to focus on four of them. I'm only going to discuss three today. Uh, one of them is risk retention by securitizers. The second one is the ability to repay requirement. And the third is reform of incentives for rating agencies. And the fourth one is a reform of <coughs> mortgage servicing. So I'm just going to discuss the first three. Um, so in earlier work with Chris Foote and Chris Girardi, my colleagues at the Boston Fed, We've argued uh, that the crisis consensus uh, is at variance with the data. I'm not going to go there about whether it's wildly at variance with the data. We wrote a paper called Why Did So Many People uh, Make So Many Ex Post Bad Decisions? And um, I urge you to read it. Uh, in this paper, uh, I'm going to take on the question, really, of whether the policy remedies are logically consistent. And again, I'm not going to go to the completely uh, question. Um, so the starting point for all this, for any policy analysis for economists, uh, I think is, um, is the first welfare theorem. 
And the first welfare theorem, right, it says that market equilibrium is Pareto optimal, which means that you can only increase the welfare, your equilibrium, you can only increase the welfare uh, of one person um, by reducing it uh, for another. And so for policy to work, the standard that we have, or the standard that we've, we uh, use in introductory economics classes, uh, is to show, first of all, that the equilibrium, market equilibrium is not Pareto optimal, so it's possible uh, to make one person better off without making someone else worse off, but then also that the policy that you've chosen uh, increases welfare um, for everyone. And what we'll, the concept in introductory economics is this concept of a deadweight loss. Uh, so, for example, the buyers want to buy something and sellers want to sell something, uh, and the, tr the trade uh, is mutually beneficial, um, but in equilibrium uh, it can't take place. And so that's a situation where you could make these two people better off uh, without making everyone else uh, worse off. So the question, one way to put the welfare question here is to ask the question, uh, are there deadweight losses uh, in equilibrium or does the policy uh, itself create new uh, deadweight losses? Okay, so let me just, before I go on, I, I sort of view the next slide as sort of ground rules for uh, my discussants uh, about what I'm trying to say here, um, which is uh, I think that the policies that that I'm going to talk about, skin in the game, ability to repay, uh, and the rating agencies are justified by uh, what I would call economic common sense. Uh, people always just say, uh, oh, it's just in incentives. Uh, it's the same way people say uh, about house prices, uh, it's just supply and demand. Um, uh, it's not just supply and demand, uh, or we wouldn't be here today. Uh, so um, I think you could think of this as Econ 101. I don't, they, they call it something different at Harvard. Uh, 10? Yeah. So um, anyway, for people that matter, uh, call it something else. But people like me call it Econ 101. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a world in which we have rational agents, whatever that means exactly. We have market clearing prices. And um, a little more subtle, and maybe this wouldn't be in, maybe it would be in Ec 10. It's not in Econ 101. Uh, we talk about rational expectations. Uh, and my thesis here is that most of the crisis consensus policies fail to improve welfare uh, in such a world. Uh, does that mean that they can't make sense? And this is where I'm saying about the ground rules. Uh, no, it doesn't mean they can't make sense. You can have irrational agents, you can have non-market clearing prices, you can have bubbles. There are all kinds of situations in which these policies could make sense, and I will talk about them. Uh, but in some sense, I view this as the challenge here is, to, is not to say um, uh, that, that Econ 101 is wrong because some of the assumptions of Econ 101 uh, are wrong and therefore you know, we can come up with any policy we want. If you want to make an affirmative case for an alternative policy, you have to come up with some justification uh, or a model uh, to say why it is that policy um, makes sense. Uh, so my point here is that someone needs to build a case uh, and in my humble opinion, at least for the policies that I'm talking about today, I have yet to see a, um, what I think is a convincing case for why these are welfare-improving policies and why we should abandon uh, Econ 101. So let me just give you as an analogy here protectionism, partly because uh, international trade or protectionism really is the birth of economics as a field. So there's a popular theory which was around in the 18th century uh, and is still uh, alive and well now which is that international trade comes down to exports are good uh, and imports are bad. 
And, uh, and so if you put a tariff on imported goods, you raise your welfare and you lower the welfare uh, of the other country. And um, this is the logic behind a lot of trade policy, even today. So Ricardo came along with the law of comparative advantage, and he basically showed, <coughs> still religion for economists, if you put tariffs on imported goods, you lower your welfare, uh, not the welfare of, well, and also the welfare of the person trading with you. And so in the 1970s and 1980s, economists came up with strategic trade, and they showed that with imperfect competition and increasing returns to scale, if you put tariffs on imported goods, there are situations in which you can raise your welfare. So what do we take away from this? Uh, it is not the case that economists now, it is not the case that in that the standard, when you ask economists about international trade, the response is not protectionism is good. The response is still that protectionism is bad. Law of comparative advantages is still the benchmark. And the burden of proof is still on the proponent of tariffs. It doesn't mean you can't make a case for tariffs. It just means that the burden is on the person who wants to make the case for tariffs, not on the economist. Well, I should say. Uh, among economists, the burden of proof is still on the proponent of tariffs. Um, in the New York Times, it's probably still the other way around. Uh, okay, so let me go just cut now into a discussion of the of the policies. So it says four policies, but I'm I'm probably only going to discuss one. Um, but I'm in theory going to discuss three. Uh, so the first one is this ability to repay requirement, uh, and so this is uh, from Dodd Frank. Um, and uh, the important part about it is that what the law requires now uh, is that a creditor making a mortgage decision has to make a good faith determination based on verified and document, documented information that the consumer has the, a reasonable ability to repay the loan. And uh, it now is the case that if the borrower ends up having difficulty paying the loan, they can sue the lender if they can show uh, that the lender did not make a, did not base their decision on verified and documented information that the borrower had the ability uh, to repay the loan. And I think to a lot of people this sounds reasonable given how many borrowers defaulted on their mortgages and it seems like common sense. Why would a lender make a decision without verified and documented information? So let me explain uh, why. So we're going to think of a lender who has 10 applicants uh, for loans and they know four of them will default. Uh, and they'll lose $10 on each one. And so John Wanamaker, uh, I always come back to this, uh, the pioneering 19th century retailer, um, is supposed to have said that half the money he spent on advertising was wasted, uh, but that he didn't know which half. Uh, and I think that's a good way of thinking about mortgage underwriting. Basically, the lender is saying, I have four of 10 borrowers will default, and the trouble is I don't know which four. And so what is verification? Well, we can think about verification as uh, that you can verify, you can, that through you know, calling the, uh, for example, man, you know, asking for written uh, proof of income, you can verify and identify two of the people who are going to default and you can reject their applications. Let's say that um, verification costs $2.50. And so should the lender verify the loan? I think the conventional wisdom would be yes. You spend $2.50 to verify the loan, and that saves you $10 loss in the future. But this math here uh, is wrong. The cost is that you have to verify all 10 borrowers. The whole point is you don't know which borrowers are going to default. So you have to spend $2.50 on all 10 borrowers, which costs $25. And the benefit here is two fewer defaults 
And so you gain $20 and you spend $25. And so this, as far as the lender is concerned, is a deadweight loss. So it is not common sense. It is not uh, always the case that it is in the interests of the investor in the mortgage or of the lender uh, or of a, of a creditor uh, to verify the information on a loan application, as we all know from having gotten millions and millions of credit card applications that we have. Credit card companies don't lose money on you, um, but they generally don't uh, verify um, uh, income. Okay, so what are the justifications for um, uh, the ability to repay uh, standard? Uh, so the, per the puzzling thing here, I think, for an economist is the purpose of underwriting is to protect the lender. Lenders underwrite mortgages. I mean, they uh, check the information on a mortgage not because they're trying to help the borrower. They don't have any duty to the borrower. They're doing it to protect themselves. We, the mandatory verification is generating a deadweight loss for the lenders. It's basically going in. The lenders are trying to protect themselves. And this is saying, no, you need to protect yourself more. But it's actually reducing their uh, welfare. I think the justification a more plausible justification for the ability to repay is that we want to protect the borrowers. And there's a, this is, a, in a sense, a behavioral argument, which is it's a borrower who prefers fewer choices. Just understand that this, what verification is going to mean is that borrowers are going to get their loan applications rejected. <clears throat> borrowers don't like getting their loan applications rejected. But the point of this law is basically to get the lenders to reject more applications. So, from a normal, standard, rational agent framework, it seems hard to see how you're protecting borrowers by getting their loan applications uh, rejected. But we can imagine, I think there's you know, a lot of research in the last 20 years making the argument there are situations um, where people prefer to have their choice set circumscribed. Um, but I think we have to understand this is not common sense economics. This is not this is kind of a radical idea. And in this particular situation, it's really radical. Because it's not just that the government is going in and saying lenders can't make certain types of loans. They're actually giving a duty to the lender to look out for the borrower. And so just to understand how radical this is, imagine if we did this for employment. So the consequences of losing a job are bad. Uh, they're arguably as bad or worse than losing your home to foreclosure. But imagine if we had a law that said the employer <coughs> must verify all the in information on a resume. And if you fire that wor worker, or you try to fire that worker, the worker can sue you if they find out that you didn't call all their references. So in other words, it's your job to make sure the, the worker, we would think, has private information about whether they can repay the loan or whether they're a good, whether they're a hard worker. But apparently, it's now, in the case of mortgage lending, it's now we're pushing it onto the lender. It's the lender's job now to figure out whether, um, uh, whether, the, whether it makes sense uh, for the borrower. I think um, another argument for this, which I'll come back to later, is that the social planner just wants fewer foreclosures. And that's something I'll come back to uh, when I talk about externalities. OK, so the rating agencies. Uh, the rating agencies. Um, uh, suppose you are an issuer of securities, and you have two securities uh, that you're going to issue. This one is a Peach, that's a good security, and the other is a Renault Alliance. Uh, and um, I'm glad to see there's some people who remember uh, we own the Renault. It, it, actually, it's a perfect example. Someone gave it to us for free. Uh, and, uh, 
that was before I'd read Akerlof. Uh, so uh, the, um, the probability, the, everybody knows the probability it's a peach is pi. The probability it's a lemon is 1 minus pi. We're going to imagine the valuation to the issuer is less than the valuation to the investor. There's a high value security and low value security. All right, so trade here, if, if there was perfect information, trade here benefits both the issuer and the investor because the investor values both the peach and the lemon more than the, um, uh, than the issuer does. Uh, but Akerlof showed that in equilibrium, uh, only the lemons are going to trade here because if you set the price equal to the actuarial value uh, of, the, um, of the two securities, uh, the, um, uh, the seller, the issuer, will only sell the lemon because that price is below the value uh, of the peach. Okay, so the, um, uh, the point here is that this is a situation in which there's a deadweight loss. And the deadweight loss here comes from the fact that the peaches <coughs> don't trade. The issuer values the peach less than the investor does. They, would like to, they both would benefit from trade uh, in the peach, uh, but in equilibrium, only the lemon trades. So suppose we introduce a rating agency. The rating agency knows which are the lemons and which are the peaches. And so what happens? Well, everyone is better off. And people, I think non-economists always, this is where they begin to diverge from economists, because in their mind, it seems like having this rating agency out there that can identify the lousy securities uh, would be bad for the issuer but it isn't bad for the issuer. It's good for the issuer because it makes it possible for them to trade the good security. And uh, so the, the seller, the issuer is better off, the investor is better off, everybody's better off. That's a good improvement. Now, suppose that the issuer corrupts the rating agency. And so the issuer says, all right, I'm going to pay you a fee which equals some fraction of the difference in the value between the security that sells and the, and the lemon. OK, so what happens? Well, the rating agency now has an incentive to say that everything is a peach. And uh, is that bad? I think the popular idea is, yes, that's bad, because now all these people are going to think they're getting peaches and actually get lemons. But that's not what happens uh, in equilibrium. What happens in equilibrium is that investors realize that the rating agency is corrupt. They know that the issuer of the securities is paying the rating agency. And so what happens, we just go right back to the Akerlof equilibrium. They know that the rating agency is always going to say it's a peach. So the signal becomes worthless. They know that they're not getting any useful information about the quality of the security. And so therefore, the rating agency is worthless. And everyone is worse off now. The rating agency doesn't earn any money because only the lemons trade in equilibrium. The investors and the issuers can no longer trade peaches, so they're worse off. No one benefits here. So this conflict of interest, I think there's some confusion between one of these areas, like international trade, where economists and popular understanding of markets differ, which is in economics, conflicts of interest are bad. But they're not bad because they allow the one person to exploit another. They're bad because both people can't trade. That's the problem with conflicts of interest. So why do we have rating agencies? I think part of the problem here in thinking about this, part of the problem with the theory that the reason why um, rating agencies are bad, the model I've just described, is I think in a way uh, it focuses on this asymmetric information problem between the investors uh, and the issuers. Um, but I think the more important asymmetric information problem is another one, which is between fund managers and investors. 
So you have a risk-neutral fund manager who wants to take on as much risk as possible, because the higher the risk, the higher the return. A risk-averse pension fund wants to limit how much risk they take. And uh, so the trustees use ratings to identify low-risk investments, and they basically create a set of investments that this risk-neutral fund manager can invest in. So the fund manager, conditional on risk, tries to maximize uh, returns. And in, to, just to illustrate this point, in structured finance, which is where all the problems were, uh, MBS, the mortgage-backed securities, the collateralized debt obligations, all the securities that caused problems in the crisis, the information available to the rating agencies was more or less identical to what was available to the um, uh, to investors. The job that the rating agency was doing was really kind of saying that this thing, certifying this thing met the criteria for a low-risk investment. They were, in terms of what the, whether this was a peach or a lemon, whether it was a good security or a bad security, everybody had all the information they needed to make that judgment themselves. That's not what they were asking the rating agency to do. And so if we moved from an issuer-pays system, which is what we have now, to an investor pays system, it's not really investor pays, <coughs> fund manager pays. And we've just explained here, the fund manager has an incentive, uh, arguably more of an incentive than the issuer, uh, to have a, a risky security uh, more highly rated. And so if we're talking about issuer pays versus investor pays, it's not clear that either one of them, if there is a problem with corruption here, it's not clear that either one of them uh, would solve uh, that problem. To understand this, I think we have to go back to this point about conflicts of interest. A rating agency is only valuable if it's credible. In a market economy, a rating agency has an incentive to avoid conflicts of interest. It's not clear what the role of the government is here. Because a, a, a rating agency that's corrupt, a rating agency that has bad incentives, that's my point. A rating agency that has bad incentives, a rating agency that is subject to a conflict of interest is a worthless rating agency. Nobody would value ratings from that agency and no one would pay them. And so the point is the rating agency, Consumer Reports, has an incentive to go and get, bend over backwards to show you that they don't take money from car <coughs> manufacturers when they do their uh, ratings. So this is, again, this is a difference between popular view and economics. The popular view is the conflict of interest is exploitation. In economics, conflicts of interest pre prevent mutually beneficial trade. So what theories can we have? One of them is that the problem here is that the government mandates the use of rating agencies. So even though the rating agency is, in fact, worthless, um, the government forces people to use them, uh, and therefore, that's the problem. But if that's the problem, then it's not a matter of fixing the incentives in the rating agencies. It's just a matter of telling the government to stop requiring uh, pension funds to use uh, national uh, rating agencies. Another thing is to talk about naive investors, and I think this is a theory that a lot of people have when I say this is, they say maybe investors didn't realize the rating agencies were corrupt. I think that's unlikely, and I point to this table which I've used over and over and over again. So who lost the most money on st structured finance? Citigroup. What did City, how did they lose money? They lost money by buying the securities that they themselves had issued. Uh, and uh, the point here is, if it were the case that, I mean, in other words, it's a very implausible story to say that Citigroup didn't understand that the rating agencies, they were paying the rating agencies. So if there was a problem, it's implausible to believe that Citibank was corrupting the rating agencies, but then also naive and not realizing the rating, that the ratings uh, uh, were valid. And then the other question here is, um, 
you could make a case that maybe five years ago people didn't realize the rating agencies were corrupt. But then why are the rating agencies still used in all structured, in all, in you know, millions of transactions that go on every day, people still use um, rating agencies. So you could make the case for naive, that that might explain what happened in 2006, although I'm skeptical, um, but it seems hard to make that case uh, now. Okay, so now I'm gonna talk about the, the way the most contentious of these, which is the risk retention requirement. So section 941 of Dodd-Frank uh, says that um, that is entitled uh, Improvements to the Asset-Backed Securitization uh, Process. And it says uh, that it requires any securitizer to retain an economic interest in the portion of the credit risk for any residential mortgage asset. And specifically, uh, it requires the securitizer to rate, retain not less than 5% uh, of the credit risk. And so risk retention, I think, is a classic thing where it sounds to people like common sense uh, the lenders were selling loans. Why would they care what happened to the loans? And that's certainly a good question. And risk retention forces them uh, to care. And it gives them the, um, this colloquial phrase, uh, skin in the game. And isn't that good public policy? Isn't that an improvement to the asset-backed securitization process? So you know where I'm going here. No. Uh, so in the paper, I consider a simple principal agent model, uh, the exponential normal due to Holmstrom and Milgram. But the points here are much more general. Uh, a principal agent model, the agent here is the lender. Um, the lender can expend effort to prevent defaults. Uh, the principal is the investor, uh, and the investor can't observe uh, effort. So the key insight in all principal agent models is that the principal knows, they don't know how much effort the agent is putting in, but they know what the rules are, and they know um, what the, the problem that the, invest, the, that, the, that the agent faces. And from that, they can back out how skin in the game affects uh, effort. And so the optimal contract here is going to be a trade-off between two effects. On one hand, more skin in the game leads to more effort by the agent. Uh, on the other hand, more skin in the game leads to more risk borne by uh, the agent. So, for example, this sentence is, I realize, a little bit... Uh, House prices are out of control. That's true, but that's not what I mean. Uh, I mean that they're out of the control of the lender. And so the point is the risk, the lender <coughs> is, for example, bearing the more skin in the game you give the lender, the more house price risk they have to take. And the problem here is that the principal has to compensate the, the uh, invest the uh, agent for all the risk they take. So it's true on one hand that they get more effort. On the other hand, they have to pay a lot more for it because of all the risk the, bar, the agent is taking on. And so the principal is going to select the optimal contract, and it means the marginal benefit of fewer defaults equals the marginal cost of increased risk borne by the agent. That's the marginal uh, condition. So what does the government do? The government comes in and says, you have to take on um, uh, more skin in the game. And what, is that ha what happens? Well, the cost of increased risk, simply by the fact that we're at an optimum to begin with, we know that the cost of increased risk will exceed the benefit of increased default. So am I saying here that incentives don't matter, uh, no. Uh, there's a general point here, which is that in some sense what we're saying here is the market is still working. There's a market is getting the incentives right. And in some sense what we're saying is there's an incomplete market for contingent claims here. But in a sense you could say there's a complete market for contracts. The agent, the, the principal has a choice of all these different contracts and one of the contracts he can choose is the one, if he really wanted 5% risk retention, there's no reason why the principal couldn't have chosen that in the first place. So let me skip these to go to the last uh, 
point here, uh, well, uh, since I'm running low on time, uh, so just in general, the effects of risk retention, um, let me just go through this briefly, and then I'll, I'll give me two minutes to go through the externalities, is the effects of risk retention. Uh, so one thing is, does it improve the asset-backed securitization process? And I think standard economics would say no. It creates a deadweight loss. Does it reduce investor losses? So you'd say, well, it's sure it, it, it may be inefficient, but it results in fewer def defaults, and that leads to less, fewer losses. And again, no. The problem here is losses, investors lose money not because of defaults. They lose money because there are more, more defaults than they expect. And the point is here is if the principal believes that the skin in the game is working and that the agent is putting in more effort, then he's going to ratchet down his beliefs about how many defaults there are. And the point is that if house prices fall or something bad happens, that's what's going to cause the investor uh, uh, to lose money. And it doesn't change any of the arithmetic of that. And finally, does it reduce defaults? And let me turn to that. Yes, if that's your goal, but it's a kind of clumsy tool for achieving it. So let me skip to the externalities, the last part here, which is, I think, to me, I think what a lot of people have in mind uh, is that risk retention is that the purpose of these policies really is just to reduce defaults. And so both risk retention and the ability to repay, we can <coughs> think of them as taxes on default. Uh, they basically, there's a deadweight loss here, um, but maybe there's some other benefit. And um, it's good for house prices, uh, and so that's the, one of the mooted benefits. Uh, so let me just talk briefly about uh, the effect of, of changing house prices on uh, of whether it's good. And so let's just imagine now that the problem with for defaults is that they lead to foreclosures, which leads to uh, an increase in the supply of housing, which pushes down house prices. So this is... Uh, we have a positive supply shock here. And now suppose we introduce uh, a uh, tax to shift the supply back. And so this would be um, the ability to repay standard or any of these um, uh, standards. Uh, what happens? Well, prices go up. That sounds good. Uh, but the problem is here, is the, are the prices good news? And no, any undergraduate economic student can tell you that there's going to be a deadweight loss here. So. If it's just having an effect on price, it's the classical pecuniary externality, and it doesn't motivate government policy. I think the more convincing argument is that there is an externality. And so this is the private cost of a default or a foreclosure. Uh, and the idea is that the foreclosure generates externalities, which means the social cost of foreclosing exceeds the private cost. And so then uh, introducing a tax on foreclosures or on defaults is good. Uh, why? Well, the prices go up, so that in and of itself isn't good. But in this case, what happens is that the number of foreclosures goes down, which leads to a benefit to all the neighbors who were damaged by the uh, dilapidated property nearby. So that's good. And that's all that green area there is the social benefit to the neighbors. And there's still a deadweight loss here. But at the new equilibrium, uh, with the tax, we have uh, an increase uh, in welfare. So the estimates of the physical externalities are small. Uh, Parag has a paper on this. I have a paper on this. They're generally fairly small, and at least in our case, uh, they're transitory. So it's a little hard to know um, uh, if that's enough of a justification, but I think it provides a valid justification for why you would introduce some of these standards. But at the same time, um, let me just conclude by saying that if really what we want to do uh, is discourage defaults, 
if the problem is defaults, then the solution is not some roundabout thing of going through uh, ability to repay standard for lenders or to um, uh, risk retention. I think a more plausible argument here is why don't we just tax defaults? Uh, so let me just stop there. Uh, and here's the slide that at least Josh has been waiting for. Thanks, Paul. Our first discussant is Parag Patak from MIT. Uh, terrific. Thanks, uh, Jeff, for inviting me here. And uh, thanks, Paul, for this uh, provocative paper. Um, I thought there was uh, quite a bit to chew off, actually, in uh, the paper. And you know, just to summarize what I took from it, um, uh, what, what Paul does is he goes through four areas related to the housing market, and he makes the following claim. He says, simple economic models, uh, and I've emphasized simple here because that's quite important for the story. Uh, they do not necessarily imply a role for government policy. Um, and the four policies, he talked about three of them, uh, they are risk retention and securitization, the skin in the game idea, uh, policies related to this issuer pays for credit rating system that we have in the United States, um, policies about the ability to repay uh, restrictions on mortgages, uh, and policies related to mortgage modification. So there's one kind of underlying theme throughout uh, a lot of Paul's paper, which is that regulators are subject to the same types of information problems as market participants. And we need to be aware of that, and uh, we need to be somewhat skeptical of uh, the ability for policies to actually lead to Pareto improvements. And so I, I really like how Paul is trying to go back to basics, back to Econ 101 or Ec 10, um, to think about uh, you know, what are the welfare economics of a lot of these policies. And it's, it's um, in my opinion, uh, it's often the case that certain regulatory re reforms are too often rushed in the wake of um, crises. So there is actually a, a fair amount of discussion in uh, Paul's paper about first principles of, of economics, so discussions of Milton Friedman and uh, Adam Smith. And uh, I wanted to start off situating my comments in terms of my take on the evolution of welfare economics, actually. So, you know, what Paul starts off in the paper talking quite a bit about is this governing principle in economics that uh, we have this first welfare theorem, competitive markets lead to Pareto uh, optimal outcomes. So if we're going to uh, make an argument for policies, we have to show where the competitive market idea paradigm uh, maybe is failing. Uh, and, you know, the most common setting for that, uh, at least in the early literature, was thinking of externalities or, or missing markets problems. So in the housing market, as Paul alluded to, the potential for foreclosure externalities is one thing that's often pointed to. So Paul goes on in the paper to talk about what I'm calling the new welfare economics. Um, and this is thinking about the considerations involving informational asymmetries. So what happens when uh, there are, uh, there's asymmetric information between contracting parties? Uh, does that necessarily provide a, a role for, for government intervention? And my take is, uh, in some cases, yes, uh, the details are incredibly important, and we have to be very precise about how we model uh, the particular, particular contractual frictions. Now, another theme that's kind of implicit, I think, in Paul's paper, especially when he's talking about ratings, is what I'm calling the new, new welfare economics. Uh, and this has to do with enforcement or political economy uh, issues. Uh, in Paul's case, what happens if the ratings agency is corrupt? Um, and that may be a, rash, a reason to be uh, a little bit more skeptical of the, the role for policies. Uh, 
And so what I want to actually focus on in my discussion is what I'm calling the new, new, new welfare economics. And uh, that's a, a, a welfare economics. Maybe it's not even an economics, uh, but it's related to this idea, uh, you know, implicit in behavioral economics, that people make mistakes. They may be uh, misinformed. Uh, they may have wrong beliefs. And I, I believe that a lot of the policies that have been actually put forward that Paul is critical uh, about Actually, uh, uh, the advocates for those policies would point to this kind of behavioral mistakes uh, point of view as uh, providing a rationale for those policies. So, you know, the challenge, as always, is, you know, it's easy to claim people were making a mistake ex post. Uh, it's much more difficult to understand what their beliefs were ex ante. Uh, and if we want to think about uh, uh, interventions, uh, it's very important to think about, um, you know, ex ante type reasoning. So I'm totally sympathetic with the general theme of what Paul is saying. The, the, bonus, the burden is on the advocates of these policies to try to precisely identify mistakes. Uh, and the policy implications here are indeed somewhat radical, as, as Paul mentioned, uh, but there may be scope for making the market uh, more operable or making it easier for market forces to uh, uh, play out their uh, role. So let's talk about a few of the examples um, that Paul went through. So this first one, um, the uh, skin in the game, risk retention. So in the Dodd-Frank legislation, uh, there's a provision saying that securitized mortgages are required to retain at least 5% of the credit risk for any security they issue backed by uh, a mortgage. Uh, and so uh, if there's securitization without skin in the game, um, you know, Paul's view would be rational market participants will demand compensation because there's not this monitoring. And this should therefore be reflected in the uh, price. So there's this tension in, that Paul uh, described very clearly. Uh, mandating skin in the game could in, uh, increase monitoring effort, but it's possible that the benefit of fewer defaults will be offset by higher prices uh, and therefore uh, welfare may, may be reduced. Um, now, if you take the model that Paul actually kind of fleshed out, building on the linear contracts model of Holmstrom and Milgram, uh, Paul has this nice extension where he says, what happens if people have biased beliefs? Okay, what happens if investors systematically overestimate underwriting efforts and underestimate defaults? Then in that model, it's possible that government policy that actually forced uh, investors to ex be exposed to some uh, risk could uh, lead them to be debiased. So that's a particular model, but it illustrates kind of the more general question that I think we need to grapple with. Uh, that is, were there these uh, biased beliefs? Were default likelihoods systematically underestimated? And as Paul mentioned, and, and, and this is something he spent some work, some time doing work on in other papers, uh, how could it be that uh, there was systematic uh, biased beliefs given that firms with the biggest exposures to subprimes were the underwriters and securitizers of subprimes themselves. So how could it be that they had wrong beliefs? And uh, I think it's a very challenging question, evidence on whether people have correct expectations. Um, uh, you know, there's only one way to be right, but many ways to, to be wrong. So one of the things that um, Paul has actually done, actually, I, I think to, very much to his credit, is he's been kind of a leader in trying to tease out whether there were actually these behavioral biases taking place uh, in the crisis literature. So let me show you a, a table from uh, one of Paul's earlier papers uh, with Chris Girardi um, and uh, others, uh, which basically makes the point that many mortgage market participants were aware that if house prices fell, uh, then borrowers would default. Uh, so this is a table here from, actually from Lehman Brothers, um, and this is from 2005, where they have uh, their various risk models in different scenarios, uh, from aggressive to the meltdown scenario. And uh, if you look at the um, 
uh, loss column. Uh, when there's a meltdown, there's going to be significant loss, is, is what uh, uh, Paul and his co-authors point out here in this table. However, the likelihood that there is going to be a meltdown was quite low. Uh, so if anything, they understood the risk modeling, but they got the actual trajectory of house prices incorrect uh, is one tick uh, from this table. Um, so this would support the idea that maybe people systematically had the wrong impressions about uh, what's going to happen to, to house <coughs> prices. Another table in that paper actually looks at uh, what I think of as belief updating. So this is views on house price appreciation from JP Morgan analysts. Uh, and you can see, if you look at the titles here, as we go from uh, 2006 to 2007, um, there's signs here that belief updating was slow. Now, that's a pretty subjective statement. But if you look in October, it says more widespread declines. Uh, in November, continuing declines, but with stronger stabilization signs. In December, tentative stabilization, so on and so forth. And um, you know it begs the question of how sophisticated were these participants, if these are the J.P. Morgan analysts, to actually have the right uh, set of beliefs. Now let's move on to the second thing, uh, which is about ratings information. So uh, the premise, one premise underlying Dodd-Frank legislation is that ratings on structured financial products uh, have proven inaccurate. Um, and there's this conflict of interest in the current issuer pay system. So Dodd-Frank uh, considers establishing a system in which you have a public utility assigning credit ratings. And so Paul uh, uh, discusses in the paper what would happen if the rating agencies paired, paid a share of the valuation of the security. This is the corruption point. Uh, that might al align the incentives of the rating agency. Uh, however, uh, if a ratings agency says uh, if they make more money by saying a security is not a lemon but it's a peach, uh, that might unwind reputational incentives and uh, lead to ratings to be effectively meaningless. So the question I want to ask, and uh, this is what other people have looked a little bit at, both theoretically and empirically, is what if investors did not understand the conflicts of interest? Now, Paul, again, has a pretty convincing point that we have to think about. How could this be possible? Because the firms that lost the largest sums of money on structured products were issuers of these securities. Uh, so again, the, the onus is on people to demonstrate that firms, uh, that investors actually did not understand the conflict of interest. So I, I want to point to another paper, which I find kind of interesting, by Koval, Jurek, and Stafford. Uh, uh, and this is a paper actually, actually about the pricing of structured finance. And uh, they make a very nice observation in this paper, which is not Econ 101, but it's Asset Pricing 101. Uh, that is, the you know, fundamental principle in asset pricing is that there should be a higher price to assets that deliver consumption in bad states, in states where the endowment is low. Uh, and so securities that do not deliver their promised payments in these worst states will have low values because that's when uh, the dollar is most valuable. So they draw an analogy between uh, structured finance products, uh, CDOs, et cetera, and catastrophe bonds. So catastrophe bonds are securities whose payoffs, uh, who, who, that payoff when there's a catastrophe. Um, uh, and so these should have a relatively high price. So their argument in the paper <coughs> is that these new financial innovations resembled economic catastrophe bonds uh, that should be priced low, uh, but instead were priced uh, based on credit ratings alone. And they go on to make this point in two different directions. One direction is uh, this basic principle that covariances are what's really important in asset pricing. Uh, was not well understood in the practitioner literature on the pricing of CDOs. And then they go on to show this empirically, that um, if you look at the pricing of a lot of structured products, uh, even though they should command different risk premium um, than you know, your AAA-rated corporate debt, uh, they did not actually command different risk premiums. 
Now, the issue here was that ratings agencies called these assets safe, even though they were not from an asset pricing uh, perspective. Um, and, you know, th th something that Paul alluded to, maybe the problem here is that investors rely too much on credit ratings. Um, in particular, there are these uh, market participants that are restricted to have ownership in highly rated securities. So the risks, uh, according to Koval, Yurek, and Stafford, were not properly understood, were not properly priced by the market. So you could interpret that as systematic evidence that uh, people did not understand and price this conflict of interest. Now, uh, you know, this is just kind of to counterweight against a little bit of uh, uh, what Paul was saying. Um, I think he raises a really interesting question actually about, um, okay, sure, maybe people didn't anticipate these risks uh, back in 2005 and 2006. Why should we expect them to be so stupid going forward, right? Um, so if market participants were ignorant in 2005, how can they be ignorant now? So that's something that I think advocates uh, of changing the uh, rating system would have to grapple with. So I think that's a terrific point. Let me move on to number three, uh, the ability to repay restrictions on mortgages. Um, so this uh, uh, you know, question that, that I want to pose is, did borrowers understand the mortgages that they took out? So this is what Paul mentioned is kind of the conventional wisdom, uh, <clears throat> that they shop enough. Now, the economic model is, well, that we, don't, we don't have a language to think about misunderstanding uh, if we are thinking of the simple model where there are rational agents with perfect information and perfect foresight. Uh, so in Paul's uh, uh, discussion of this, uh, you know, if the borrower has private information, a rational lender should simply verify income up to the point where it's in their interest. So that was an example that he went through. Um, now, um, I knew Bob Hall was going to be in the audience, and I think he's got a terrific paper about actually shopping around for mortgages. Um, and what he does in that paper is he looks at uh, uh, mortgage brokers, and he makes the point that borrowers would benefit substantially from additional shopping. So maybe there are these frictions that prevent um, people from actually shopping uh, enough. And they go on to argue that a simplified environment uh, where, broker, where a broker receives all compensation from um, uh, a lender rather than points and all these other things uh, in their empirical setting leads to better terms for the borrower. So Again, the rationale that I think a lot of people have in the back of their mind is not maybe this simple economic rationale, but it's more this behavioral rationale that uh, borrowers may have these self-control issues. Now, this is a pretty radical thing, I think, when we think about interventions based on behavioral ideas. Um, but um, let me uh, jump ahead, actually, to say what you know Bob Hall actually wrote in his paper about what we should do to make it easier for people to shop. So here's the quote uh, from uh, Susan and Bob's paper. We are inclined to believe that simple admonitions such as, quote, mortgage brokers are salesmen, and the only way to get a good deal is to shop and bargain. Or, quote, you are more likely to get a good deal if you shop for no-cost loans, are more likely to yield improvements than teaching borrowers financial economics. So I, I have a hard time squaring this idea, which is probably right. I, I think this is, you know, this sounds sensible to me, with simple Econ 101, because inherent, I think, underlying the thinking here is people did not actually process, they didn't shop, shop enough. And it's, you know, they're saying even here strongly, it doesn't even make sense to teach them basic financial economics because this is a complex problem. So that's one kind of theme, I think, underlying a lot of the, the policy uh, rationales uh, for, uh, you know, the next foreclosure crisis. So uh, other people have talked about let's make it more difficult for people to choose a non-standard mortgage package. Now, thinking a little bit about the economics here, um, you know, these complicated contracts exist because the brokers and um, creditor um, are getting profits from them. Um, 
So I think what we have to think about is maybe regulations that make it easier for the market mechanism to, to apply. Now let me go on to the last point about mortgage modifications. Uh, so one thing that is often discussed is that foreclosures may involve these negative externalities. So we want to encourage loan modifications. The conventional wisdom is that there weren't enough loan modifications because of these uh, institutional frictions. Um, and what Paul uh, contributes to this discussion is, well, if there is this imperfect information, again, uh, on borrowers' willingness to pay, we have to assume that a lender will choose the number of modifications simply to maximize profits. Uh, so therefore, if we have very small financial in incentives, like maybe the, the HAMP program, that won't have a huge impact on changing the incentives to uh, um, renegotiate. Um, so, bar so lenders will find it in their interest to foreclose, especially if we think there may be imperfect information, there may be subsequent shocks that will then allow borrowers to redefault if we renegotiate. So I think Paul is totally spot on to say if we want to change the profit ma maximization calculus, in this particular setting, we either need to inflict large losses on lenders or cover their losses, and this can then be quite costly. Um, so the question that we need to think a little bit about is how do these foreclosure externalities compare to the costs imposed on, on lenders? Um, and um, not the costs uh, imposed on lenders, I think also another thing maybe that Paul could bring up is the longer-term effects of changing the incentives for borrowers. Uh, and this is something that there's now an emerging literature on is the potential manipulation of eligibility criteria uh, for mortgage remodifications. So here, there are kind of two points of view here. Uh, one, uh, Luigi Zingales is pop popularized. He said, well, people are not going to, if they know that they're going to get the terms of their mortgage renegotiated, they're not going to actually uh, you know, be more strategic because of bounded rationality uh, or moral considerations. Now, uh, kind of the counterweight to that is this nice paper of Chris Mayer, uh, where he looked at the countrywide decision, um, and that uh, is a setting where uh, countrywide was mandated to change, um, um, <clears throat> you know, to, to modify mortgages. And he saw uh, strong evidence of strategic behavior. Um, so uh, if you look at the delinquency rate of countrywide's uh, loans, it actually increased after they announced this uh, mortgage remodification program. So my own view is I'm not sure which effect dominates, but uh, you know, if we are going to use Econ 101, I think this is another thing that contributes to the discussion, the potential for strategic behavior. Uh, so to wrap up, I think it's hard to disagree with Paul's basic premise, that is simple economic models need not rationalize intervention. Um, and you know, this is the Cato Institute, I remember this great saying about libertarianism. Libertarianism is a great philosophy except for children and idiots, right? And so maybe I'm talking about the idiots here. Uh, and this is the question, whether these simple models adequately capture what took place. Were people confused? Um, and maybe there is a, a larger role for behavioral considerations. And I don't think Paul is opposed to this. I think he wants us to concentrate on that. And in fact, he's done this in other work to try to capture people's expectations. Uh, I do think that this is likely in the mind of many advocates, um, even if, as, as Paul's right to point out, it's not been articulated clearly. Now, there is always this longstanding challenge of ex ante versus ex post uh, uh, reasoning and understanding whether market forces will lead people to learn um, but I think what's quite important uh, in Paul's paper today and in some of his other work is additional research to understand the extent to which, you know, people just got it wrong in an ex-ante way. Um, so. Great. Thanks, Clark. Uh, last, we're going to hear from Neng Wang from Columbia. 
Well, uh, thank you very much for having me here, and thanks for your interest. Uh, okay. Um, so the main point of this paper is to uh, to use economic policy uh, theory to evaluate economic uh, policies. Now, this is for economists. This is an obvious uh, starting point, and Paul, you know, goes through four examples that you've seen already twice. And I'll do that again. That the common policy recommendations that we uh, that we hear about and we see may not be consistent with the standard economic theory. Um, Paul also cautioned that it does not mean these policies cannot be justified. You just you know need richer, more complex model coding to 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 show their relevance and uh, and then legitimacy. Okay, so. Um, I think that point, you know, on its own, it's hard to dispute. It's uh, it's it's what we learn. It's, you know, that's the standard logic, and um, so there's not much to dispute. Um, both Paul and uh, Barack did a little overview about uh, how to think about the welfare and the policy. So here, you see the third time my take. Now uh, we love uh, invisible hands. You know, we formalize them, and of course, it's beautiful because you know that's what we economists call first best. You know, competitive equilibrium is pretty optimal. We're done. You know, everything's wonderful. Unfortunately, that's far from reality. And the second version of it, and the modern economics goes, is that uh, I'm looking at here, is that uh, you know, let's talk about frictions. Now, why first welfare theorem doesn't hold? Now, we economists tend to call them the second best. Okay, constrained efficient allocation, and so on. Now, once you assume rational agents optimizing under rational expectation, which means everything's fairly priced, everything's anticipated, there can be agency conflicts or information asymmetry, but nobody's duped in equilibrium. Now, with that constraint, which is very powerful paradigm, again, you know, you may not like what you see in reality, but there's not a whole lot you can do other than, you know, Exceptions like you know external, externality and so on. So, so with that in mind, uh, here's the key argument, right? So, so, the key argument is that, as I said, you know, resource allocation may not be efficient, but there is not much you can do. Especially, you know, uh, Parag mentioned about the information knows, uh, information set by the government. It's unlikely that the government knows more than the private agents. And that basically says, well, what's the room right, for, for intervention, if any? Now, this argument actually is generic. It has really nothing to do with crisis. The four, policy, the four policies that uh, Paul uh, went through in the paper and discussion, a uh, presentation, is, is about crisis-related uh, policies. So what I want to do is try to bring the policies a little closer to the crisis aspect of it. You know, as Prague mentioned, maybe there's something that's not exactly so simple that fits into the standard you know, principal agent models or general or the standard econ 101 that we teach. Okay. Of course, you know, this is Cato, so you know, we're talking about the potential justifications of government intervention here. It does not really mean that you know, it's necessarily the thing that we should expect government to do, knowing that, of course, government itself is an agent. Okay, uh, the four um, policies that uh, Paul went through, the first one, risk expansion, <coughs> also he refers to it as skin in the game. The second one is about rating agency issues. And the third one is about ability to repay for the borrowers. And the 
the last one is the mortgage servicing. So what I'll do is I'll go through, um, let's say, three or four of these and then uh, give you my take. Now, before I get started, here's a, just a chart to give those of you who are not you know, uh, following this uh, very closely. So a lot of guys are involved, okay? Um, so it's a very complex uh, relationship. You know, some are more long-term, some are really just one-time deal. You go to the broker, you get the loan, so see you later. You know, the broker may have reputation with other borrowers, but really between you and the broker, that is it. It's complex, and um, the four uh, policies that uh, uh, Paul went through involve the four relationships that are right here. It's uh, skin in the game, would be the issuer here. Well, anyway, so it would be, would be the issuer here. And uh, you know, then the borrowers, that would be the ability to repay, that's in the blue one. And uh, rating agencies is down over there, which is the one provides certification here. And uh, 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 the servicing, which is uh, over here. Okay. The, the servicing, which is between the uh, issuer and the borrower. So this is basically the picture that, uh, that touches uh, uh, various uh, uh, parties. Okay, um, all right, so let's. So first, uh, the risk retention, the Dodd-Frank Act. Now there's this 5% quoted, and as economists, you tend to be suspicious whenever somebody throw a number out because you say, where is that from? And why that not 10%, why that not 20, right? So that's, uh, as, as any critique that, you know, for policies, that's the first thing that uh, at least strikes to me. Um, you know, the popular, press or the, the, the common argument that I guess what uh, Paul called uh, uh, economic common sense, in quotes, I think that's what he called in today's presentation, is, is clearly not tight. It sounds like somebody's duped or somebody's taking advantage of, right? Because in the standard rational expectations model, everything's priced, everything's anticipated, and then it just really, in the end, works against whoever that is uh, optimizing because that becomes constraints, okay? So, 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 of course, there's nothing to dispute there. And, uh, you know, Paul uses the simple Holmstrom-Milgram model to illustrate that. Um, put it a little differently, if this regulation of skin in the game is so wonderful, why uh, didn't the principal here, the investors, do it in the first place? They are not dumb, right? They're rational and optimizing and so on. Okay. Uh, so, the model is what we teach our students, right? So it's very simple, but, you know, the, if you think a little more broadly, like who is the principal here? The principal, just, just entertain the idea, potentially represents investors, you know, say pension fund managers. Pension fund managers, they presumably behave in their own interest. They may not necessarily behaving in the retirees, current and future retirees' interest. Um, now, if you have a client base who actually are very much into buying AAA for the sake of argument now. You know, there's reasons we can think about why AAAs are so great, okay? So, which I will come back again later in, uh, in discussions of other policies. Now, if there's this demand for AAAs, with that additional constraint into account, it's not necessarily the case that the contract between the principal and the agent that we'll write down will actually include skin in the game, okay? So if that's the case, if you think additional agency issues that's not completely explicitly incorporated in a standard textbook model, then perhaps, just perhaps, okay, there's room for skin in the game, okay? Um, so let's 
So in economics, there's a big literature in, called incomplete contracting. It means different things to different people. Paul, in his earlier uh, research, did a lot on incomplete, con uh, incomplete markets and uh, financial innovation. You know, there's some analogies between the two uh, strands of literature, and there's similar insights, but very different. So my take is, yeah, it's great to think very carefully about bilateral contracting relationship, but the real-world contracting involves a lot more uh, parties that uh, basically uh, makes the predictions, at least to me, not very straightforward. Um, okay, so even that's the case, uh, should government ever get involved in micromanaging contracting or market design between private parties? Generally, my philosophy is no, right? You know, it's, it's private sector's business. Now, I think what's going on here is why I mentioned with the crisis. What's really different about these policies is potential some macro general equilibrium implications. I got two of my former teachers, both distinguished macroeconomists in the audience. So, um, you know, we use the word like a systemic risk a lot. I don't really know what it means. People have a lot of hunch about it. People write about it. I think it's really important. But really, I mean, for the sake of a discussion, let's just use this word. I think something that's different about these four policies is that people, either ex-ante, probably very few, or certainly ex-post, thought that contracting arrangements, potential failure or potential uh, uh, suboptimality of contracting arrangements involving financial intermediation can have very different impact. I guess you can also view this, broadly speaking, as an externality via prices. Okay? Because prices will, um, it's just beyond the two single party uh, contracting. Let's think about one example. Suppose everybody runs their credit risk analysis. Uh, treating the down, pricing the downside risk, right? You, you see these uh, correlation matrix and so on that people throw around, and also some statistics and the quotes from the earlier discussion that, you know, there was not an overwhelming concern about uh, the potential embedded risk. Well, that actually could, in theory, be reasonable from individual, uh, say, investors' perspective. The problem is if everybody's rating on the downside risk, ignoring price externality, it could be what they view it as idiosyncratic, or asset pricing one on one, which means that if it's idiosyncratic or if it's just simple beta you know, pricing correction, you may not, if everybody does it, and if actually it's correlated, it could be actually there is additional uh, amplification effect. In financial intermediation uh, sector, say the hedge funds, for example, you know, going back to late 90s, the LTCM, and all recently the quant meltdown, which has happened during the financial crisis, all basically said that they were riding all on the similar factors that they thought that were not at all that correlated with other players. It turned out to be hugely correlated. It seems the recurrent, it happens all over again, again, again. So I think what makes these policies particularly interesting, I guess, for you know, the audience is their potential systemic implications, okay? Now, as an academic, it, to me, I think, you know, Paul's starting point is excellent. It's a very natural starting point to talk about crisis, but we really barely scratch the surface. To me, it's almost like Paul defines the question, say, okay, so we gotta think about this. What's wrong with his argument? Or what's incomplete with his argument? Argument is correct. Okay, so then, um, so to me, you know, I think general equilibrium is at the core here, okay? So we really, I mean, the problem with the general equilibrium models, as an academic, it gets easily complicated, okay? Dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model. Very, very complicated. Now, to me, that maybe when you think a little harder about, which is actually what's happening in the literature, is an intuitive, so we actually understand the mechanisms, but also very serious, that in a sense we capture important financial frictions in the world and capture the endogenous feedback between agency and the general equilibrium. 
You know, we see a lot of job market papers popping out every year these days over the last five, six years by, you know, really top young scholars. Uh, so what that really means is the private and public sector trade-offs are very likely to be different. We actually already have some models that <coughs> speak to that. Okay, so I think this is really uh, very exciting uh, work uh, going forward. So I guess uh, in terms of the first point, what I would like to say is that I agree with his argument, but I think that really just poses a sensible gnaw that you know, everything's open uh, for, for, for discussions. So we need a richer macro model, we need a rich agency model, we need to take quantitative implications seriously. Uh, I'm not gonna touch that much on empirical evidence, but you know, there's a, a lot of debate in this literature about how to interpret empirical evidence. I think one way potentially to augment or to complement what we are doing in the, uh, in the profession at this moment is to think more about maybe theory-based estimation that has a little closer link between theory and welfare. Um, not rating agencies. There's two views about rating agencies. There's the reputational intermediary, which is that they okay, only make money if they have good reputation. And there's all sort of, of course, an alternative view, which is just, let's just sell regulatory licenses uh, by this lawyer. Now, um, Paul mentioned about the issues uh, of uh, who pays rating agencies and so on. I think actually a bigger issue is probably uh, the shopping, the rating shopping. Okay, uh, we know there are three players in the, in the industry, okay, and the Fitch is the third one, which is a lot smaller by long margin, I think 15% market share roughly. The other one takes 80%, uh, divided the equally almost. Now, uh, so uh, here's a quote from my uh, Columbia uh, legal scholar, Jack Coffey. You probably see him on TV a lot. So this just gives you a notion that, uh, first, a lot of fees, which I think we more or less know, and second, uh, you actually have uh, options to, sh to, to shop, okay, so, and you have the option of going back and saying, no, I don't want your rating, and so on, okay? Um, so, a colleague of mine, Patrick Bolton, uh, has a paper in Journal of Finance that uh, sets up a model. Um, now, the key, one of the key assumptions, uh, which basically puts us outside of uh, Paul's uh, uh, framework is this a trusting investor, okay? Now, so the model goes, the issuers pay, okay, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and they can shop, okay? And uh, the two kinds of investors, sophisticated and trusting, okay? Think about sophisticated as hedge funds, okay? They really have high-powered incentive to get the economics right, okay? And really, you know, other kind of institutional investors, uh, pension funds. You know, there's really, uh, I would say, quite a bit uh, agency issues involved between pension fund managers and their constituencies. Um, and also, right, when we talk about the behavioral biases and so on, CDOs involve very, very sophisticated valuation tools. I don't even know how to value that, and I, you know, I do quantitative modeling and so on. Look at the tr 20 tranches out there and how it gets tranched. It, it, it really takes a big faith in your, I don't know, 50 parameter uh, econometric model based on historic data that excludes, uh, you know, a housing crash. It, it takes a lot of faith, and also it's very complicated, right? And so we have, uh, you know, various, you know, Paul said, you know, if everybody has saved, saved me information, credit agencies don't, credit rating agencies do not really have anything more than what everybody else knows. That's true, but we all know that, you know, valuation is very sophisticated, and even you have the same set of information, but maybe specialization was caused for, you know, limited attention, 
you know, expertise, you know. So it's not that everybody has the same information. That means that uh, we're not going to be able to get additional information from rating agencies per se. And also rating agencies have their discretion to adjust models to some extent. And also there's a lot of barrier to entry. Sounds like it's a competitive market. It's not, okay. Um, and competition in this case, due to the, the, the market design and the, uh, the, the, the decision uh, uh, the, the, the margins along which that various players get to play, you actually, in this case, competition makes equilibrium worse. Uh, of course, reputation certainly partially mitigates these issues. Uh, just to give you a notion that the, you know, you know, Paul raised the important issue, which is, you know, why do we need rating agencies anyway, right? So there's a lot of barriers to entry. Uh, SEC created this uh, organization, an ISRO, and basically, you know, it's like you're caught, uh, you, it's catch-22, right? It's like, okay, you need to be nationally recognized to rate it, but hey, to, to, to rate it, you've got to be in the club. So it's kind of, well, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, there's merger going on. So basically, uh, even this is actually a highlight to 2003 because I want to show you that even before the crisis, you know, regulators understood, actually, you know, there's barriers to entry. Okay. So uh, third, uh, okay, so... Almost running out of time. Let me just talk about the ability to repay. Um, I echo, you know, Parag's point, which is, you know, um, maybe we need to think about the behavioral biases, right? So think about Joe, who has no job, no income, no assets. Um, the, the claim in the paper, uh, which I echo, which is ultimately any justification relies on a behavioral model. Uh, but here, I think actually it's important to explore that dimension. So here, my take on this. Uh, I'm, you know, my models involve no behavioral biases. So here I have really no stake. Uh, but you know, underestimation of risk, uh, very hard to understand what leverage does, especially for average Joe, uh, overestimating ability to pay, and inability to commit, time inconsistent behavior at Lipson, and both uh, Paul and Parag mentioned this. Uh, so if you take a behavioral biases, it's possible that we can justify government intervention, obviously, but maybe it's too paternalistic. We don't know. So it's your call. Um, I do want to bring out the issue about the bubble. It's very hard to measure, right? It's very hard to model. We have very few good models about bubbles. But suppose, let's just entertain the idea, which is not totally crazy, that suppose, let's say, people see that the bubble is forming. Okay? What do you do if you, if you were in the economy? Well, it could easily be. We do have, we do have papers which shows that you can easy, you can, it's easily optimal for you to write the bubble, assuming the bubble existed. Okay? Now, what's great about bubble is actually it makes the option to take on risk, which is what leverage allows you to do, borrowing from the uh, banks, is even greater, right? Because you have an upper side and you have limited liability, and actually uh, it makes this even incentives are taken on risk by writing the bubble is even greater. Okay. So the problem with this is that uh, uh, make it worse is that you may have just so is that you have potentially uh, creating a systemic risk, right? If everybody so here's like coordination. If everybody wants to ride on the bubble and everybody knows that the others are riding the bubble, your incentive to ride the bubble is actually greater. This is called complementarity. Okay, so economists write a lot of models on this, and actually somewhat believe this story. Okay, it's almost like you know I don't want to sort of push this too hard, but I think it's not a story you can literally rule out. Which is, look, if everybody rides the same bubble, and for most investors, that's the, only, that's the best option to ride the bubble, and the lending standard is slack, is lax, and it's possible that, uh, you know, and the government will be the backstop anyway, if, if that's really what's going to happen, which is what we see. So this really has, uh, uh, sorry, um, um, 
you know, it's, it's a possible story. So of course, that of course lies outside of Paul's uh, 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 framework. Okay. Now this is just a side comment. Well, anyway, so there's a lot, a lot of problems in China. I came from China, as you may guess, have guessed, and then real estate bubble is one of them. But one thing that the bubble hasn't really burst for ten years is because there's a huge down payment. Okay, so whether that's good or not, I don't know. But anyway, so uh, let me skip this. Uh, uh, okay, so so you know, discussing the last discussion mentioned X and X post. Yeah, so um, actually, I think uh, Paul also mentioned in his paper. So this is just for you in terms of writing paper. I think there's actually a very nice reference to support your argument, which is both in Shafstein's trade-off between one versus multiple creditors. Okay, so summarize. Uh, I on the big point. It's hard to dispute um, what Paul said. Uh, to me, I think the textbook models are very nice uh, uh, for us to start thinking about policy uh, making, especially, you know, given the importance of the uh, of these issues uh, motivated by the crisis. I think the bottom line to me is that I think it's uh, you know basically I guess that's the message also Paul is trying to uh, convey is we need rich and manageable crisis models where I think general equilibrium is very important, systemic risk, and we need to be more serious about quantitative implications because at the end of the day it's about the numbers, right? So five percent skin game or or what? Um, more theory based as empirical work. So uh, with that, I look forward to the next draft. Thank you. Paul, do you want to take just a minute to respond to the discussants? Just a minute to say that, in some sense, um, uh, I said about the, the ground rules. In some sense, this is exactly what I want, which is, which is we need to start thinking about plausible stories uh, to justify the policies. Uh, and, and so, you know, to be more pointed, I mean, I, I have had lots and lots of conversations with economists where they explain that the reason why we need the skin in the game requirement is because skin in the game leads to more effort. And that is not a, you know, that just going back, that, that's not enough to justify the government intervening uh, in, uh, in the formation of, of a private contract. So I think it's great. I mean, this is just what I wanted in some sense is to say, look, we need, a, if you want to do these things, we need a, a better story. So let me just say, the thing is that once you come up with a story for why you want uh, regulation, then, uh, you know, sort of the thing is, is all turned around and now, uh, then you can start criticizing those alternative theories. So let me just do that. Uh, so is to say that, uh, for example, you take this issue of the complex securities. People say, oh, these things were very hard to value. People didn't lose money on, security, on CDOs because they were hard to value. The Abacus CDO, the notorious one for which the Chicago PhD student is going to trial, that security, the, the payoff on that security was zero. So it's not, you didn't have to be a, Chicago PhD to figure out that if the, there's no money coming into the security, if the thing is completely worthless, if all 90 pieces of collateral backing the thing are worth zero or were. That's why the security failed. You don't need a sophisticated model to figure out that you're going to lose, lose money there. Uh, and, um, and then on the question of do borrowers understand the mortgages, one of the things we've talked about over and over again is that there's a popular perception that borrowers uh, defaulted because of adjustable rate mortgages, but when you actually go to the data, you find very, very few of them did. Most of the time, they were making the same payment when they defaulted on the mortgage that they had at the beginning. So I'm saying once you propose an alternative theory uh, to justify this, then we have to evaluate that theory for... Uh, for um, it, it, it makes the policy much more uh, vulnerable. So that's my. Right.
So we'll take some questions now. Just to remind you all that we need microphones so that everyone can hear online and in person. And please give your name and affiliation. So Bob Hall, Stanford. Well, first of all, Paul is shooting fish in a barrel to come to Cato and tell us that uh, we should only make policy changes uh, if they make everybody better off. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the basic principle of John Locke, uh, and it's a very restricted view of, of social uh, welfare. Um, Paul Samuelson taught me to think in terms of a social welfare function, which, of course, does not uh, involve that, the Lockean principle at all. Um, that said, I, of course, I agree completely with everything that uh, Paul said. There are, two, uh, there are two separate issues here, which I think are a little bit intertwined. One is the incredible social cost of the crisis. Um, now, that resulted entirely from the development of an extremely fragile financial system, largely or partly encouraged by the free government put that uh, too big to fail uh, introduces to the financial system. And that financial system is built, built entirely on mortgages, entirely on real estate. Um, the, the rest of the national financial system <coughs> is based on equity. Uh, companies that do anything outside real estate don't have any debt to speak of. It's all real estate related. So we had an extremely fragile economy based on real estate. Um, now, we have 2,000 pages of Dodd-Frank to try to deal with that, but the only thing we really needed was more equity. Uh, you could have had one page of Dodd-Frank as long as it specified enough equity, uh, and you could throw away the rest. The rest was a trying to deal in a second best way uh, with problems that developed that were subsidiary to the lack of equity in the financial system. Okay, so Paul really didn't talk about that at all, but rather uh, the fact that the crisis revealed uh, chronic problems in residential mortgages, um, and especially those made to... Uh, lower income uh, borrowers. Uh, and um, uh, so the, the main one is that people just overpay. Uh, that's relatively easy to document. Um, uh, whether, whether they also overextend, which is the issue I think that Paul was getting into, I think is not quite so obvious. Uh, there's a very interesting paper about subprime lending uh, in the car loan market uh, by my colleagues, uh, Liron Anov and John Levin in the AER, uh, the default rate in those uh, loans is 65%. Um, nobody has said, oh, well, we need to have, everyone needs to be able to prove that they can repay for their car loan. And I think the same principle ought to apply, uh, provided that people know what they're doing. And I think part of the answer is that they know what they're doing with car loans. Uh, but they know less about what they're doing with, with mortgages. So, and I think Paul definitely believes strongly in the kinds of things that, that are, I think, going to happen in, in residential mortgages, which is better provision of information to prospective borrowers. Uh, mortgage counseling, interestingly, has worked very well uh, and, in fact, is mandatory uh, in the reverse mortgage market where it's worked out extremely well. Um, so, but that seems to be the direction that we ought to go. Uh, it seems like the only policy move that, that makes sense on a permanent basis from this point forward that we've learned about is to try to get people to behave more intelligently uh, when they are confronted by a, a silver-tongued uh, mortgage broker who uh, is causing them to, first of all, to overpay and, and second, and 
possibly to overextend. Anybody want? Question from uh, Arnold? Yeah, I'd just like to put in a plug for looking at behavioral politics in addition to behavioral economics. Uh, when I think of the role of the rating agencies, uh, the most naive customer and the most, in some ways the most powerful customer of the rating agencies were government regulators, you know, using risk-based capital that didn't use covariance and, and so on. Uh, and I, I doubt that the rating agencies would have played as important a role without that. Um, and then you, in some sense, your analysis of these skin-in-the-game policies and so on, to me, I think of in terms of lenders making type one or type two errors, you know, and the, the fact that they, you know, they, can't, they can't perfectly separate out the people who are going to default and who are not going to default. And you know, if you'd asked you know, the political players in 2006, what, what are lenders doing wrong? They're making too many type two errors. That is, they're turning down too many borrowers. And now you ask them in 2009, 2010, and it's sort of, you made too many type one errors. And that's what the whole, you know, all the skin in the game policies are trying to, to uh, deal with. And of course, that's a, they're doing that, the politicians are doing that exactly the wrong time. So the time to implement policies to reduce type two errors and, or sorry, to, to reduce type one errors was 2006. The, the time to do, eliminate type two errors is 2010, and they do the opposite. And so what I would be most confident about, about the skin in the game and so on, is that those rules will be loosened at precisely the point where the next bubble appears. Uh, this, so um, your uh, Prague said, referred to libertarians as good for uh, everyone, but uh, children and idiots uh, remind me in, in software if you try to make something idiot proof they'll just build a better idiot and I think that the better idiots in this case are, are going to be the policy makers thank you can we get a mic in the middle uh, thank you Ross Levine UC Berkeley um, so the approach that you take um, makes sense for an economist. It's let's start with a world where there's no government except for one that um, you know enforces contracts appropriately. And then we'll add in some informational problems, some behavioral complications, and we'll see what types of policies emerge. Um, and that's you know appropriate along many dimensions. But I wonder whether the actual policies that you're considering, that, that you're sort of refuting, come from a world in which there are already a wide array of public interventions that are distorting incentives that are not going to be removed so that you can go back to this perfect world and then start again. So if we have a world in which there's too big to fail, in which there's deposit insurance, in which the government says that um, it's um, already dealing with the risk of investment banks where the FDIC finds problems and then doesn't do anything about it, where it creates a licensing system for credit rating agencies. Can we use your approach in a world in which those policies aren't going away? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think the answer is, uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the answer is, um, 
um, I think we can use economics and we can use modeling and you can put it into big to fail and all these things. You can put that into, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I always have to be, I mean, economic models do terribly. I mean, if we had good economic models, we would never, we'd never had the crisis in the first place. But the, the point is that, um, that the, uh, this is you know, from inside the Federal Reserve, uh, is that the, 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 at the same time, um, I think it's important to have this as a starting point. I think that's all it is. But I don't, I mean, in other words, when you ask someone, why do you think skin in the game is a good idea, they don't say, well, it's a combination of, you know, various different government policies interacting together in a general equilibrium model to generate uh, a sub socially suboptimal outcome. That's not what they say. What they say is it's, you know, the, 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 the originator didn't have enough skin in the game, and therefore they didn't put enough effort in. And I think it's our job to say, well, what do you mean by enough effort? What do you mean by, you know, that's where we're coming from. I don't, I'm not... I'm not saying in some sense that you should base policy on these models, but you can't, you, if you want to make the case for all these interactions, great, uh, then make the case. But that, and that's what I'm saying is, to date, no one has. And, um, and, and I think uh, that's exactly right. I, I, I completely agree with that. I'm just saying that to date, most of the explanations for why we need skin in the game is, well, that people put in more effort. And the presumption is that more effort is better than less effort, and therefore, you know, like more exports are better than more imports. Uh, and so we can just end the discussion right there. One more question from the back. One of the last things you said was that um, at the time of default, uh, those with adjustable rate mortgages uh, we're making the same payments. If not uh, higher payments, what were the reasons uh, people were defaulting? Borrowers. Lower house prices. So, I mean, that, that's... Not related to... to the, pardon? And that was not related to... to no. To, I mean, the, 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 the thing themselves? is, so, this is in the other paper I mentioned. So, we, when you count of the people, so between 2007 and 2010, who... Um, I can go into the details, but just who defaulted on their mortgages. Uh, when we calculated it, so uh, about 60% of them had fixed rate mortgages, and almost 90% of them, even if they did have adjustable rate mortgages, rates fell. Uh, and so most of them were making the same payment at the time they defaulted that they were when they got the mortgage. Uh, and so um, the house prices started falling long before all these borrowers uh, defaulted. So I, I think the... Um, the the you know, model we have for this is for a lot of people it was the so-called double trigger which is the house prices fell and then something else went wrong like they lost their job or somebody got sick something like that and normally they would be able to sell their house that's how they would get out of it or refinance and by 2008 that was no longer possible for most homeowners or for many homeowners and those are the people who, who defaulted on their mortgages and so there's a question why did house prices fall then you get into why did house prices rise, um, uh, and these are all general equilibrium things. I, I think I've had many, many times over the years people say, well, wasn't it the mortgages that caused house prices to rise and the mortgages that house, caused house prices to fall? No. Uh, so first of all, it's not the case in, so we go back to general equilibrium here, it's, there's no theorem that says that when you relax credit, you get a bubble. None. Absolutely not. And, uh, and that's, so there's no intuition for that. And then the second thing is that 
Um, when um, the, the, I mean, the house prices basically started falling before the borrowers started defaulting on their mortgages. So I think, I don't, I don't, um, I think the causality went from the house prices to the defaults and, and, and not the other way around. So. That didn't help. Yes, that didn't help. I mean, in terms of the foreclosures, but obviously the, the, the foreclosure crisis started before we had 10% unemployment. 